0: Right here we go. The talk tonight um, will explore practicing with individual and collective reactivity, Um, being on the lookout for doorways into greater presence, care. embodiment and freedom. So I thought I would start it out with a short exchange that I had with a Dharma friend and colleague um, a few years back. Her name is Sumi Loudon Kim and uh, she is a buddhist teacher and author and currently the buddhist chaplain at yale university but when i had this exchange with her she was the buddhist chaplain at duke uh, university in north carolina and that matters because the conversation that we were having happened right after the first retreat that I ever taught where I had to make the call to evacuate the retreat center from a hurricane okay so this was a retreat center in North Carolina uh, near Duke University where she was then and being a native Californian um, my level of understanding about hurricanes pretty much i could sum it up by saying i knew they involved a lot of wind and a lot of water okay i can tell you all about the direct experience of earthquakes being a native californian but hurricanes no so there i was um, teaching this retreat and hurricane florence was uh coming in and and then made landfall as a category one hurricane and so i was working with the staff to make the call about if and when to evacuate so we did in fact make the call to evacuate the center in the face of the hurricane and the good news is is that everybody got home safely including me. I hopped in a car with somebody and made a quick dash by car over to Knoxville, Tennessee and got the very last flight out. Um, So here we are. And after that event, I was kind of processing what had happened. It all happened rather fast. And, you know, I was rather open teaching the retreat, you know, kind of the way I am right now. And so I reached out to my Dharma friend Sumi, and I just said, "Well, you know, this is this is what happened. It was it was rather intense, you know." And so we're having this exchange, and I happened to save uh, one of the emails that uh, we sent back and forth. She said, "Ah, oh, yes, the levels of fear, parentheses, which were real and well founded." So she was referring to my experience of the hurricane. Uh, The levels of fear which were real and well-founded are definitely high in the populace, and we are all so much more vulnerable in this era of climate change. There's no question humanity generally is struggling with a new reality, that frankly, we have zero neurological, evolutionary, or biological systems built to address, i.e., We're good at getting out of the way of a falling tree, but we can't get our heads around large scale climate devastation. Um, This is part of the experience of of being a uh, embodied, heartful, conceptual minded human right now. Uh, It's what we're working with, whether we live in long-term forest fire zones like i do uh, you're in other zones of heat or cold or just noticing that if you've lived in a place the long time the experience of weather is not the same as it used to be that's just one piece that we're working with all the time with more or less consciousness in these nervous system bodies and in our hearts, in our minds, in our communities. So I want to shift gears a little bit to the time of the Buddha. And uh, a teaching that he gave uh, the sutta is actually called the All, uh, Samyutta Nikaya number 35, for those of you that enjoy looking up suttas. And it was the Buddha's teaching in answer to uh, one of those big questions. I imagine if you lived at the time of the Buddha or any of us that have had access to a wisdom elder, uh, these are the ones that we ask the big questions of. And so somebody came and asked the Buddha one day, what is the world? What is the world? And the Buddha said, ah, I can tell you exactly what the world is. The world is the experience of these six sense doors. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. That is the world. I love really short, simple teachings from the Buddha like that. They're easy to remember. Uh, They kind of open me up to the mystery of the big questions. Remind me that I don't need to try to figure out the answers to every one of these big questions. That there's wisdom available uh, in here and out there. Um, And the reason that I want to um, share that simple teaching from the Buddha is context for the main teaching of the Buddha that I want to bring in now. Um, And that's from uh, one of the more famous teachings of the Buddha that is uh, called in in a casual way, the Fire Sermon. So if you take a religious studies course, say at a university, uh, and uh, you go through what are the main teachings in Christianity and Islam and Judaism and Buddhism, you're likely to get this teaching from the Buddha is one of the teachings. It's very well known. And it's called the fire sermon. So before I launch into this, uh, in paraphrase, probably one more thing important to mention. And that is how we get sense store contact. So if the world, as we understand it in direct experience, is made up of these six senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind. Then how do we have a sense door experience? Um, We have a semi-functioning sense door. They don't always work perfectly and they don't always work. Um, But as much as they do, whenever they do, um, we've got an organ of the eye or the ear, etc. And then we've got an object to be experienced. So it could be an object of sight, uh, looking at something in the room, a lamp, a curtain, um, glass of water something to see something to hear something to taste etc and just to keep it simple then we have kind of the consciousness characteristic that lights the whole thing up um, which could be a whole nother teaching but right now let's just say it lights the whole thing up so when we bring those three together and in the case of the sense doors we don't need to intend to make that consciousness work they come together and light up the experience. Which is great because think about how hard we'd have to work. Um, you know, every time there's a sight and a sound and they're all happening at the same time, and like consciousness, work, work, work. It's like, no, 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 it's, it's got its own um, conditioned volition. So I think that might help as some context for the first part of this teaching from the Buddha. Um, so the world is burning bhikkhus, friends. All is burning. And what, friends, is the all that is burning? Okay, we already know because we know the answer to the sutta of the all. What is the world? Okay, what is the all that is burning? The eye is burning. Uh, The forms, the objects are burning. The eye consciousness is burning. Eye contact is burning. And whatever feeling arises with eye contact as a condition, whether pleasant, painful, or neutral, that too is burning. So now we've included the second foundation of mindfulness, which Oren mentioned in the instructions that we have these tones of experience at the sense doors. Sometimes they're pleasant, sometimes they're unpleasant, sometimes they're neither, but huh, it's all burning. So the natural question is burning with what? And in fact, that's the next line in the teaching. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of desire. Burning with the fire of aversion. Burning with the fire of delusion. And then it includes a whole other variety of things that um, basically fall under the first arrow. (laughs) Things that happen to us being a human being living a life. So burning with the fires of birth, aging, and death, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, I say. So those are all things that happen when we're a human being living a life. And so when stress and struggle come up around those things, we can know, oh, I'm alive. I'm still here life's still happening. Now, Oren uh, spoke beautifully in his own words describing the Four Noble Truths a couple of nights ago. Uh, The way that I speak the Four Noble Truths in my own words is um, first, it's not easy being a human being living a life. Second, the basic cause of our dis-ease is struggle. Third, Peace is possible. Same body, same sorrow, lamentation, grief, and despair. Same society, peace is possible. And then uh, fourthly, there's a path to peace. There's tools. And so this teaching from the Buddha goes on uh, that the ear is burning, the nose is burning, the tongue is burning, the body is burning, the mind is burning. the whole thing plays out again because this is an oral tradition and so that's how people would remember the teachings is they would repeat them, you know, in various different ways and. Um, when we repeat a practice we remember it when we repeat words in our head that inspire us we remember them, uh, and so the teachings of the Buddha work that way, and so all of these things are burning with this kind of stress, but it doesn't end there because the great invitation of this practice is teaching that peace is possible. So then the teaching says, and I'm gonna paraphrase it, but the first phrase is important. Seeing thus, seeing these conditions thus, friends, the wise, noble practitioner experiences disenchantment. Okay. So you might think, well, I like being enchanted with things. Magic is cool. Okay, it's it's not negating um, the magic that you might experience in the world, but it's the enchantment with, it's the getting lost in things. Uh, Going back to making things more real and permanent and more about me than they actually are. Enchantment. So, experience a disenchantment, a wider, wiser, caring perspective with this process of stress and release. Mm-hmm. Whether it's with the uh, eye and the sight, or the nose and the smell, or the mind and the thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. And experiencing that disenchantment, uh, we also come to experience uh, in that perspective, that wider space, a kind of detachment. And it's not a detachment of non-caring. It's a detachment that allows intimacy with our experience, aliveness with our experience, delight in our experience, because we're not lost. We're not captured in it. And then through that kind of detachment, liberation is right there. Hmm. And it all starts with those two words seen thus in the Pali, um, evam pasam. So, given sufficient clarity of vision, i.e., insight into the true nature of things, the fires of desire, of aversion, and delusion can be completely cooled and extinguished. So we've got burning and we've got cooling down. Those last words I was quoting were um, from two uh, teachers and, and early mentors of mine, uh, My, especially my earlier years of practice, Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amro. Ajahn mean te- means teacher and uh, And their names, and they were co-abbots of a monastery in Northern California called Abayagiri Buddhist Monastery, and Abayagiri means fearless mountain, and if you've happened to have the privilege to go there, you know why they call it that, the monastery is straight up a mountain. Um, And so that last quote was from them. So, okay, we've got this burning up with the struggle around things, the stress, the difficult emotions, the reactivity. Um, and one of the ways that I like to hold it in a metaphor is um, the image of wearing colored glasses. Yeah. It's like we wake up in the morning sometimes, and you know how sometimes you just wake up in the morning and you've kind of got a pair of colored glasses on? I'm not talking about the ones you actually physically put on your face, but it's, it's the color of experience. Um, and so, or an experience will happen and all of a sudden you'll notice the glasses of uh, aversion stuck on your face. (laughs) Where did those glasses come from? Uh, usually they came from a sense door experience (laughs) that we didn't catch in the moment. And so then it created reactivity of, in this case, aversion, but it could be the, I want everything glasses, the desire glasses or the confusion glasses. And um, for some of us, we'll have a pair of glasses that are more familiar. So for me, the most familiar glasses of those three patterns of reactivity are the aversion glasses. Like if I'm not paying attention to my experience, mindfulness has lost its footing and something new happens for me, automatic response in the system is now, just now. And that can lead to aversion. Um, Other people have a different kind of pattern where when the mindfulness isn't strong, they're not deeply connected with experience, something happens, they're not paying attention, and the automatic response is more, okay, (laughs) is the greed glasses. And then, of course, the other one with the delusion confusion, it's it's like something happens and, huh, not sure. (laughs) not clear when the mindfulness isn't there, connecting with experience. So I like to use the analogy of colored glasses. I I wore glasses for a lot of years. Um, And when you look at the world through the colored glasses, so the world being the sense doors, everything complies. When I'm feeling a lot of kind of low grade anxiety, aversion type of stuff, like everything I hear feels a little bit more startling and abrasive. Everything I'm seeing, it's like seeing it through the perception of what I don't like about it. You know, you have a conversation and it's just easy to connect with the aversion when the aversion glasses are on. Same with the desire glasses. Same with the confusion or delusion glasses. So sometimes I'll use that to be able to recognize and then move into label, like what reactive pattern is coloring the lens of perception right now? Because seeing thus, then I can move out of the enchantment with it. Like, oh, this is the world. Everything's a little scary. Oh, this is the world. If I only get what I want, everything will be okay. Those are enchantments. And then we can move wider and more spacious beyond those enchantments and start to have a kind of perspective that allows liberation to shine through. So sometimes we'll have one of the pairs of glasses that's more predominant for us in experience and sometimes we'll have a more sensitive sense door too. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this but thinking of the six sense doors, sometimes we'll have one that's more likely to lead to reactivity of one kind or another Um, for me it's sound just literally came into the world with the privilege of really good hearing and um, in part because of that and part probably just because of sensitivity of this nervous system sounds will easily bring up reactivity of wanting or not wanting especially um, for me So, you know, it could be smell. It could be sight. could be any of them. So just checking, like, where do you have more sensitivity? Because you can bring in more attention there and more care where you know it's more sensitive. So I was working with this uh, earlier today with uh, one of my neighbors. And with the sensitive sound door and the predominant reaction pattern of aversion. And so um, one of my neighbors is actually this uh, little dear dog. Um, and I haven't actually met this little dear dog in person, so um I can't I can't call it by name, but I call it the little dear dog. <laughs> Um, so that I can feel connected with it, especially when the aversion and the sensitive ear sense door is happening because this little dear dog clearly has a very sensitive nervous system. Okay, and so it gets let outside and the first thing that it does in the midst of a world that's so much bigger than it is it goes. And then it continues and continues cycle after cycle and right now it's really cold. And so, you know, again, like, I'm making a little meaning here to make a point, I don't actually know if this is true, but I just imagine that having a little body like that, and it's actually really cold here today, and kind of damp, and, you know, it's just hard on the system to be out for as long as my human neighbors are leaving this little dear dog out, and so It was just barking and barking and barking without cease for several hours, cycle after cycle. It would kind of take a breath and keep going. And so the first half an hour, I was kind of in the meta, this little dear dog, the scent store. And, you know, the connection with the dog for me is like a pleasant feeling tone and the sound is unpleasant. And... My initial reaction to it was kind of neutral because I've had it a thousand times. So it didn't really like grab me particularly. But after about a half an hour, I just noticed the system, like wanting to do anything to get out of this. The aversion glasses were getting glued on, you know, and it was becoming more and more unpleasant and just the sound so abrasive. So, you know, I turned on some music. (laughs) The dog was so loud. I could hear it through the music. So, okay. So I tried to get out of it. And, you know, we already know from these teachings that there is no getting out of it, but it gave my nervous system a little bit of a rest to be able to bring more resiliency to the moment. And I turned the music off and just was there with the sound and the kind of unpleasantness and the inversion glasses and bringing in more space, more perspective, more presence, more care. And I could just feel the system starting to settle. The dog didn't stop the system settled. And then there was a sense of more connection again and more peace. This story is not about me and the dog. This story is about how we practice and find freedom in the most ridiculously ordinary circumstances. So you can work um, with this teaching, you know, with, with the glasses or With a sense store in particular, just noticing what's burning with struggle and stress. And then how does it cool down? So let's, this cooling down. I'm gonna bring in another quote from Ajahn Pasno and Ajahn Amaro. And it's a quote that gives us some context about the word Nibbana in the face of burning and cooling. Nibbana, which literally means the extinguishing of a fire, derives from the way the physics of fire was viewed at the Buddhist time. As fire burned, it was seen as clinging to its fuel in a state of entrapment and agitation. When it went out, it let go of its fuel, growing calm and free. Thus, when the Indians of the Buddha's time saw a fire going out, they did not feel that they were watching extinction. Rather, they were seeing a metaphorical lesson in how freedom could be attained by letting go. So, context matters. It's the the context of uh, the historical understanding at the time of the Buddha. So this sense of there's this burning in our direct experience triggered by sense door activity and the second arrow. Uh, This is burning, stress, struggle. There's also this possibility of cooling. Uh, Nibbana, which is often translated as as, uh, awakening. Nibbana is a verb. nibbana in. We're in the process of nibbana And I love that the other night, um, Dawn shared much more fully than is often shared um, the teaching from the late um, Southern Thai forest match- master, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, on Nibbana for everybody. That every time those fires of greed and aversion and delusion have a pause, that there's a gap, There's this experience of cooling and release and freedom. Small moments many times. It's wonderful. So instead of saying more about it, a short reflection practice. Um, Opening question of this short reflection practice. And just trusting what comes up for you. Um, Where are you burning up with reactivity these days? Is there a a theme or two? Is there a sense door? And the sense door may be the mind that particularly triggers it off. And just feeling into that, the, the honoring, taking a moment in presence and care with the stress of it and the burning of it calling it by name, offering that intimacy. You know, feeling where are you mm, being affected by the burning you can check in in the body when you call it the theme, what happens in the face, the chest, the hands, other places. What emotions come up? How are you affected by the burning? Again, in this space of tremendous presence and care. And then lastly, uh, what is your toolkit to see the reactivity? Support it to cool down and cool out. Maybe just thinking of a couple of things that you know support you with this issue. So burning up, the effect, cooling out, what helps? So we've been um, practicing and reflecting so far on uh, working with transforming and releasing uh, individual reactivity reactivity in our own mind, heart, body, system. Um, but it, it works in um, similar ways, a larger, more complex ways, uh, with cooling the fires of collective reactivity. It's like what we develop in our own internal skill set then can be applied um, in our families and our friendships and our work in our service, um, in our activism, uh, in our society. So I want to bring in um, a little bit of teaching and a few practices, particularly in the face of collective reactivity. And sometimes another way of talking about collective reactivity is collective trauma. So I wanna acknowledge that at a high level of reactivity collectively, we can be also talking about trauma. I'm just gonna to refer to it as collective reactivity. Before I say anything more about it, I wanna acknowledge uh, an influence um, on my teaching on this, which is the work of Manuela Minx-Reed. And uh, Manuela Minx-Reed is German by birth, but uh, a long-term resident in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, a colleague of mine. Uh, She's a Buddhist teacher and author, um, but she's internationally known as one of the top trainers in the Hakomi method of psychotherapy, and Hakomi is a mindfulness-based, body-based modality of psychotherapy, and so she and I have done a lot of teaching together on Dharma and the body over the years, and I've done some training with her and her tremendous expertise in this area. Um, particularly when it comes to collective trauma. Um, So maybe just to define collective trauma briefly and then uh, look at the wider scope of collective reactivity. So collective trauma is an experience which affects the psychological health of the whole of a society. Uh, It tears apart the fabric of what we knew before to be real and true. Um, And it often happens over time and it's ongoing. Um, An interesting thing that comes out of it is that it actually can influence large scale change of societal norms of collective identities and it can actually lead can be the catalyst for a collective awareness rising a collective awakening. So the very thing that can lead us into more darkness can also lead us into more light. It's the same in our own hearts. It's the very thing that we're othering that often has the information that we need to be full, to be whole. So it can work on both sides that way. And so I certainly uh, don't need to tell us that we're living in these fields, not just of individual reactivity all the time, but collective reactivity. You know, we've got four overlapping collective trauma fields right now. It's big. We've got the ongoing pandemic, the ongoing climate crisis, um, the ongoing racial injustice based on generations of structural inequity. You know, and we've got increasing political polarization. That's a lot. Let's just take a few deeper breaths with that. Because we say it, but then it's like, yeah, we also feel it. Let's just take a moment, take a few deeper breaths, feel our feet. Oh, remember the refuge of the earth, which is a power greater than ourselves. So every time in our lives is a great invitation into practice into healing and into full awakening Um, and these times are calling out to every one of us in any way that we feel inspired called to engage the energies of reactivity, knowing that through that engagement, when we do have a toolkit and we do have support, we don't do it alone. This is not a solo hero's journey. This is the journey of we. And when we take that journey, um, there's so much to offer just in the simplest, most ordinary ways. calling us into practice, calling us into doing the work that needs to be done in a titrated way, less is more. It's not that thing of if we only suffer enough, then we'll be free. It's, oh, let me feel into this moment of difficulty. Oh, let me meet this moment of difficulty with this dear one in this situation, one by one, taking a lot of time for support. I want to share a quote by um, the late Christian mystic, Thomas Merton. The whole idea of compassion is based on a keen awareness of the interdependence of all these living beings, which are all a part of one another and all involved in one another. We are so involved in one another. That's exactly why we need the equanimity that we were just practicing in the last session because we are so involved with one another. You know, one of my um, favorite personal sets of equanimity phrases in the face of um, collective reactivity actually first developed it to work with difficult family situations, but it, it, it works great in other contexts too. And it's this honoring of our connectedness and the perspective of differentiation. So the phrases go, I have my path. You have your path. And I care about us. I have my path. You have your path. And I care about us. I can't walk your path for you, but I care. So my equanimity wishes in that very non-traditional way have a tremendous amount of caring in them, right, in the wishes. So three helpful wisdom perspectives with working with all of this, and they're set up in kind of a, a dual way to make a point. Three helpful wisdom perspectives. Number one, when we're in the face of reactivity, our own or the collective, self-kindness versus self-judgment, you know, or kindness for others versus judging others. First really helpful wisdom perspective. And so hard. We all know it. It's like meditating is so humbling in terms of being in relationship with the judgmental mind. Because you know, we're sitting there quietly and they just keep coming. Ourselves, everything that's happening at the sense doors, every story, you know, and it just goes on and on. And then there pauses, you know, it takes a break. This pendulation, this changing the channel when we notice the judgment. Ah, I could change the channel to kindness is one helpful wisdom perspective of many working with the judgments. Uh, number two. Common humanity versus isolation. This one's huge. As a society, we're isolated. And then we have the pandemic that's created more isolation. We've got political polarization, which has created more isolation, less opportunity in certain ways um, to connect. So when we notice that feeling the walls closing in in the meditation. Open the eyes, look around, connect with the space that you're in and the the pleasant objects in it. From that isolation inside to connection. Um, And of course, um, also with others. You know, it's like, oh, okay, I just haven't quite connected enough. And maybe we go take that walk and connect with nature or do a safe activity with somebody or, you know, reach out through the technology that is both so challenging and so beneficial. You know? But just remembering that we can change the channel, that the isolation doesn't need to move into a pit of despair. We can change the channel back into connection and common humanity. Oh, I just noticed here, I have a, um, a quote on despair by David White, who I believe Don quoted last night, so an Irish poet. Despair is kept alive by freezing our sense of time and the rhythms of time. When we no longer feel imprisoned by time, when the season is allowed to run, Despair cannot survive. So the third helpful wisdom perspective, mindfulness versus taking it too personally over identification. So I'm just always on the lookout for when uh, direct experience is being created by this mind here that I call Heather into me, with a capital M, and when it's turning into me with a capital M, and it's turning into a main event with another capital M, ah, that's the wake-up call. In the recognition, I can change the channel of mindfulness and go, uh uh-huh, me with a capital M is like this. This is the story running, but I'm not enchanted, not lost. This is how it feels in the body. This is the wider space that includes it. So, the wisdom perspective. When we notice that we're, you know, reactivity tends to be oh, like make us feel very overpersonalized. You no, know, it feels very real when we're experiencing reactivity, and of course, it's real on a relative perspective. But there's another perspective, and that wisdom perspective. It's not real in the way it appears. So, few practices. And these are all embodied practices. So first foundation of mindfulness-based practices. And I'm going to name them first and then we'll um, do a little meditation practice together with them. And this will be the the last piece of the teaching. It will be our own practice. Um, So embodied practices. Uh, Number one, movement. Uh, Number two, water element, embodied fluidity. Number three, accessing aliveness. Uh, Number four, um, opening to the rawness with compassion. And number five, lingering in pleasant experience is not cheating. So, we'll dive into direct experience a little bit here. Just say a simple word first about um, number one, which is move. So during the course of these um, collective trauma fields that we've been in, one thing that I've been saying to meditators is please move and keep moving, which is not something you probably heard your meditation teacher say a lot necessarily. Um, you know, of course, stillness is important in our meditations but um, too much stillness too much of the time we spend too much time in front of screens you know not moving as much as we normally do whatever it can actually lead to more of an immobility response and even a freeze response so we want to actually move and keep moving and i've been talking to a few of you um, even in your meditation a question came up this morning what about fidgeting No, and I was just saying, yeah, it's okay to put your hands in your lap. You can try it right now, actually. So let's move right into it. You know, in the times when you feel a lot of reactivity in the meditation, and you've tried all the tools that we've already offered, and it's still just burning, maybe you just need a little movement. So put your hands in your lap. I'm just starting with the pinky finger on one of your hands. just, Just press it gently into your thigh or your lap. And then the ring finger. Feel the contact, the pressure, the warmth. Mental finger, pointer, thumb, and do the other hand. Sometimes I'll add a mental note. As I do a finger, I'll say, Budo. And the next finger, I'll say, Awake. Budo. Awake. Because the word Budo actually means awake. Budo. Awake. And you can come back the other direction. Just allows a little movement so the walls don't close in with the reactivity. I do that in meetings that are highly reactive. (laughs) Hard conversations. Nobody knows we're doing it. Move and keep moving. So as we keep settling into embodied presence, it's the possibility of touching into the water element in the body. So you might feel uh, the saliva in the mouth, the mucus in the nose, water element. If you're digesting a meal, there's all kinds of fluidity and water element happening in the digestive area. Mm -hmm. Movement of blood. Maybe we'll just take a moment to feel sensations of fluidity um, in the hands. Um, And if your hands hurt, just um, do the same thing with your feet instead. Because I know that when we're talking about reactivity, it's easy to have reactivity come up. So let's invite that reactivity to move down and out the hands or the feet by feeling the sensations, including sensations of water element. So any sensations of flow Let's be available for them. As from the late Master Lao Su. Water is fluid, soft, and yielding. But water will wear away rock, which is rigid and cannot yield. As a rule, whatever is fluid, soft, and yielding will overcome whatever is rigid and hard. This is another paradox. What is soft is strong. Our whole non-violence movements on this planet are based on that principle. So another way I like to um, bring in water element when there's a lot of reactivity either uh, interpersonally or internally is just allow my movements through space to be more fluid. It's like the difference between doing the dishes and you grab the dish and take the sponge and scrub, 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 and tonk, in the dish rack, and like, oh, lifting the dish, wiping the dish, flowing the water, putting it in. How we move through a room and the water element. Um, Going out and being in the rain, getting in a hot bath, water element is helpful with this principle as Illuminated by Lao Third, accessing aliveness and direct experience. How do you know you're alive right now? And is there enough space and willingness to celebrate it for a moment? Noticing the energy rising on the next inhale and the kind of uplift and energy of it. Maybe feeling the the warmth, the vibration, the vitality of the body. The miracle that it just keeps living. I don't know how everything keeps functioning as well as it does. It's so amazing. Celebrating aliveness is a wonderful support in the face of ongoing reactivity. Brings joy, gratitude. But so, too, we can also, within this aliveness and the gratitude for it, also touch into the rawness, the vulnerability of being human. Just taking a few gentle breaths with that sense of vulnerability. A lot of care. Appreciating it, too. And then, lastly, let's use the eye sense door for this opportunity to linger in pleasant experience and pleasant feeling tone. So, just looking around the space that you're in um, for something beautiful that's your favorite color or um, you know, that just has that pleasantness and letting your gaze land there softly and, and taking it in. Taking in the pleasantness of it, and just lingering a little bit. Supports the system to just rest and absorb in the pleasantness and remember that there's more than the negativity bias. So those are all different ways that we can um, practice short practices that happen in our lives as well as meditation. When we're feeling like the reactivity, inner or outer, is a little much. Mm -hmm. Closing quote by the late great Sufi mystic Rumi. Makes me feel connected to common humanity that he said this 800 years ago, because it's so apt now. Try not to resist the change which comes your way. Instead, let life live through you. And do not worry that your life is turning upside down. How do you know that the world you are used to is better than the one to come? Feeling into that sense of possibility. The difficulties can be the doorway to increasing clarity, understanding, compassion, embodiment, and freedom, individually and collectively. So thank you for your kind attention, And we'll keep going in all postures, all activities. Enjoy. See you again soon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.